we've been reading the first few chapters of Matthew. We've been following Jesus as he begins his ministry. We saw him get baptized and we heard the voice say, this is my son, my precious son, whom I love. Uh, We saw Jesus battle the devil in the wilderness and how he conquered um, through holding to the word of God. And then we've also um, heard and reflected on Jesus' first sermon, Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Now we're going to look at what Jesus does next and study that together, the calling of the disciples, Matthew 4, beginning at verse 18. Hear the word of the Lord. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Dear friends of Jesus Christ, one of the fascinating new careers that social media has opened up is that of the professional influencer. According to uh, InfluencerMarketingHub.com, an influencer is someone who has the power to affect the decisions of others because of his or her authority, knowledge, position, or relationship with his or her audience. Or they have a following in a distinct niche with whom he or she actively engages. So basically, influencers are people who have a presence and a following. And it's that following, that potential for influence, that makes them valuable to companies that want to sell their goods. So let's take Joe Rogan, for instance. Whether you like him or not, his interview podcast is basically the most listened to show in the entire world. Hundreds of millions of people tune in each time he posts. Because of this influence, because his his show goes far and wide, companies will pay Rogan a large amount of money to promote their, their stuff on his show. And so he does a little commercial at the beginning and he makes a lot of money doing so. Some influencers make a little, some make a lot. It really depends on the size of your following. Addison Ray is currently the top grossing influencer on TikTok. I had to Google that, I didn't know, but anyway, she's up top. She has 86 million followers, and last year she made over $5 million from a variety of revenue streams related to her channel. And her videos basically consist of her doing like 10 second dance moves, and then her trying to sell stuff. But I guess it's wildly popular, and she makes a lot of money doing that. It makes you wonder what the rest of us are doing slaving away at real jobs. We could just be doing little dance moves. (laughs) And before continuing this morning, I just wanted to say that this sermon is bought to you (laughs) by Bubbly. 
it's water that you have to buy. But let me tell you, after a long Sunday morning on the pulpit, nothing hits the spot like an ice-cold bubbly. So I'm not a top-grossing influencer, and no bubbly is not paying me to sponsor their products, not at all. But this role is an influential role, and my media platform is right here, right? I'm standing on it. And it's my job to influence the decisions of others through the preaching of the Bible and through the relationships that I have with you. Before there was TikTok, there was pulpits and public squares and soapboxes that people turned over and stood on. Influencers have always been around. And if you think about it, influence as such is not necessarily a bad thing. All of us have a realm of influence. Grandparents influence their families. Teachers influence the worldview of their students. Peers influence one another. And our lives, essentially, if you really think about them, are the sum total of the people who have influenced us. The way we dress, the way we talk, our work ethic, what we eat, how we cook, how we manage our finances or mismanage them. These things we learned by people who had influence on us. And whether you're conscious of it or not, at some point, someone you gave someone power to influence your living and thinking, and they, in a way, discipled you. And now their way of doing things has become your way of doing things. I wonder who are the influential people in your life? Who discipled the way that you currently live and carry yourself? And how would you rate the value of their influence? You know, or, sorry, here's, and here's what I'd like to make the case for today. I'd like to make the case that Jesus Christ is the most successful influencer of all time. And I'd also like to make the case that he's the best person to have actively shaping your life identity, and decisions today. You know, everything we know today about Jesus um, comes to us via the people that he discipled. Jesus didn't write, write a book. He discipled people who then shared the stories. By, by, by far, the most influential thing that Jesus did was make 12 disciples. The fact that Jesus had disciples is not really that surprising. It was common in his day. Basically, all Jewish teachers had disciples. And it was a great honor to be with one. And the higher the status that a rabbi, that's the Jewish teacher, the more people wanted to study with them. And he had to apply, and only a few people would get accepted. It was a great honor to be a disciple. And given the intensity of the learning experience, a rabbi could only disciple a few at a time. Disciples left their families and lived with their teachers, and they did more than take notes. They emulated their rabbi's life and style and followed him all around. So if the rabbi retreated to pray, 
the disciples were treated to pray. If the rabbi fasted, the disciples fasted. If the rabbi got up in the middle of the night to memorize the book of Deuteronomy, the disciples got up in the middle of the night to memorize the book of, the, of Deuteronomy. The goal was to be with the rabbi long enough to start talking and acting and living like the rabbi. The learning philosophy of this, this discipleship training school, is basically boiled down to these three phrases. Be with the rabbi. Become like the rabbi. Now go and do as the rabbi does. Now, a few handful of disciples won't change the world, at least not quickly. But the expectation was that these disciples would go out and disciple other people. So if 12 disciples each took on 12 more disciples, then that would be 144 disciples. And if each of those 144 disciples took on 12 more disciples, then the influence of the rabbi would slowly ripple out in a profound way. The major difference between Jesus and the rabbis of his day is that most rabbis waited for disciples to come to them, but Jesus goes out and he calls disciples to himself. Peter, Andrew, James, John, come, follow me. And at once we read that these men, they left their nets, their livelihoods. Uh, two of them even left their dad in the boat holding all the fish. And at once they left and they came and they followed Jesus. Bible scholar Dale Bruner believes that the obedience displayed by these fishermen highlights not the strength of their character per se, but the power of Jesus' effective word. The fact that they obey Jesus, it highlights not the strength of their character, but the power of the call. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. And behold, there was light. Now Jesus is saying, let there be disciples. And behold, there were disciples. Fun fact. Did you know that the Greek word for church is ecclesia? Ecclesia is basically a compound word, so two words put together. The first part, ek, means out of, and the second part, kaleo, means called or summoned. Put these two words together, and you have basically a gathering of the summoned ones. The ecclesia, the church, is a gathering of those who have been called out. I find this helpful for thinking about the fundamental nature and foundation of the community that we're a part of here. We aren't simply a gathering of the willing or the worthy, but a community of the called. Our existence is not simply rooted in a common language, a common heritage, or some other commonality that people tend to rally around. What we have in common is the deep down sense that we need to be where Jesus is because he has summoned us to himself. And sometimes we find ourselves with other people that we wouldn't necessarily think to be in relationship with, right? Other than the fact that we both share the sense of call. I think of the first group of disciples. They were a diverse bunch. Among the 12, there was Simon the Zealot and Levi the tax collector. Zealots were Jews that were fiercely anti-Roman and tax collectors were employed by the Romans to take money from the Jews to give to the Romans. These two, 
would not have liked each other one bit. And there they were, both called into a discipleship relationship with Jesus. It's the call, the word, that creates a new community. The church is the gathering of those who have been called out. Called out of what exactly and called to what exactly? We don't know for sure. Jesus doesn't, we don't, I mean, it does not all worked out here, but certainly there's themes that we can point to, like called out of the world, called out of the things that we're stuck in, called out of patterns of thought and ways of being, called out of old influences, called out of self. It's time, says Jesus. You've been discipled long enough by the patterns of this world. It's time for me to disciple you. Now, Jesus doesn't ask all people to leave their careers or their fathers in the boat, but the call does invoke this turn. The old influences have to go, and Jesus needs to become front and center. Come, follow me. So the church is the gathering of those who have been called out of the world, and what Jesus calls us into is a immersive discipleship relationship with himself. I find this so fascinating that this is where Jesus chooses to expend his energy with the 12, the 12 disciples. You'd think that if he was trying to make a splash, he'd organize a Billy Graham-style preaching crusade, or maybe he'd build a gigantic cathedral, something that would, that would cause people to come and, and take note or maybe he'd write a book and have it published far and wide. But Jesus doesn't do any of these things. In fact, whenever the crowds following him get too big, Jesus retreats, or he finds a way to thin the herd by giving a talk on the true cost of discipleship. Jesus pours his energy into 12 people. He teaches them what it looks like to live according to the values of God's realm. This is how you pray. And then Jesus showed them how to pray. This is how you cast out demons. And then Jesus showed them how to cast out demons. This is how you teach. This is how you preach. This is what it looks like to, be, to serve and not to be served. And then Jesus would show them by his actions how to, how to live this way. Jesus washed his disciples' feet. He said, I have done this... For as an example for you, as I have washed your feet, you are to wash one another's feet. Be with me. Watch me. Become like me. Now go and do as I have done. And before Jesus ascended into heaven, he commissioned his disciples to carry on the mission of discipling. Jesus said, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And empowered by Jesus' Spirit, that's exactly what the disciples did. Like Jesus, the disciples preached the kingdom of God, and they called people to repentance. Like Jesus, they devoted, they, 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 um, call, like Jesus, they called people to turn from their old lives and become disciples. Like Jesus, they devoted themselves to prayer, to teaching, 
to table fellowship, and like Jesus, the disciples discipled those who heard the call. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And slowly those who had been discipled by the disciples went out from Jerusalem to disciple others. Led by the Spirit, Philip went out on the road, and there he met a man from Ethiopia who had purchased the scroll of Isaiah. He was curious about God. Philip introduced that man to Jesus, and that man was baptized, discipled, and took the message of Jesus to Ethiopia. Paul received the call while on the road to Damascus, and he was discipled by Ananias and other disciples of Jesus in Damascus. Paul spent over a decade quietly apprenticing his life to Jesus' life before going out to make disciples in Asia Minor and Europe. That's actually a little, no, little known fact about Paul's life, is after his conversion, he actually had a lengthy period of time where he, presumably he was being discipled. Timothy was discipled by Paul, and he in turn discipled the church in Ephesus. A couple named Priscilla and Aquila were part of that con congregation for a while. They helped disciple a man named Apollos, who needed a little correction with his understanding of Jesus. And then Apollos went out and he was one of the great missionaries of the early church. And slowly the influence of Jesus began to expand the area throughout the Mediterranean. The Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities tried to influence the disciples out of existence but those who had been with Jesus had become like Jesus, and so they prayed for their enemies, and they did good to those who persecuted them. And the more they were persecuted, the more the influence of Jesus spread. In the year A.D. 33, the approximate year of Jesus' death and resurrection, there were only a handful or a, a few disciples of Jesus but 300 years later, disciples of Jesus had become so numerous that even the emperor himself, Constantine, became a follower of the way. How did this happen? It happened because 12 people were discipled, and they in turn discipled 144 others, who then in turn discipled 1,728 more and so on. The next number is 20,000-something, if everyone continues with 12. And you know what? This discipleship revolution, it has not stopped. The influence of Jesus has literally spread all over the entire world. And it has so impacted our thinking, our acting, that we can actually not even conceive a Western civilization apart from the impact of Jesus Christ. And that's even for people who don't testify to have faith in him. They too have been impacted. Let me explain. There's a St. Joseph's Hospital in nearly every major city around the world. Disciples of Jesus started those hospitals in order to continue the healing ministry of Jesus. Nearly all the major universities and schools in Europe were started by monks who wanted to continue the teaching ministry of Jesus. The reason that literacy rates are so high all around the world is because disciples of Jesus translated the Bible 
into the vernacular, and then they taught people how to read so that they too could meet and learn about Jesus in the Bible. The fight for the abolition of slavery in Great Britain was spearheaded by a disciple of Christ named William Wilberforce. Food banks, crisis pregnancy centers, soup kitchens, shelters for the homeless. I'd wager that most of these essential organizations were created by and are supported by disciples of Jesus who are trying to put into practice Jesus' call to care for the least of these. And in every city, in every corner of the world, there might be a lot of Christians, or there might just be a handful, there are people gathering on Sunday mornings right now to listen to Jesus' words. They've experienced the nudge, they've heard the call, and are meeting with other Christians to be with, to become like, and to carry on the work of Christ in the world. I don't think it's actually wildly controversial to say that Jesus is the most influential man who ever lived. And he never wrote a word down. He never built a building. He poured into 12 people. The more pressing personal question we need to consider today is our relationship with him. Here's the thing. Discipleship is always happening. You are the way you are right now based on the discipleship that you've received in your family of origin, at school, from other influential people, forces in the culture. We are a shaped people. We are being discipled. The question is not, are you being discipled? The question is, who's doing the discipling? And what is the end for which they are discipling you? Do they have your wholeness? Do they have your good in view? Or are they hoping that at the end of the interaction, you'll give them your credit card number? Addison Ray says that she loves you, but really she loves her followers because she loves what they can give her. More followers means more ads, which means more sales, which means more money. Jesus, in contrast, lays down his life for his followers. Lays down his life. No financial gain whatsoever. Jesus never focused on that. Laid down his life for his followers. Though they abandoned him, he did not abandon them, but he offered himself to rescue them from the influence of the power of sin and death. Our wholeness, our holiness, our rest, our peace, our joy, our flourishing, this is Jesus' aim. Constantly he's saying, I have told you these things so that in me you may have joy and your joy may be complete. Jesus says things like this too, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. In other words, come to me, all you have, who have been badly discipled by the influences of the world. Come to me and I will give you rest. Let me disciple you. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and humble and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So you have been discipled. How do you evaluate 
the quality of that discipleship? Are you at peace, at rest, or weary and burdened by the formation you've received? The call of Christ rings out through the generations. Come, follow me. Turn, leave, move into a relationship with me. Dallas Willard once wrote this provocative sentence, and I find myself still thinking about it all the time. There is no problem in human life that apprenticeship, meaning discipleship, to Jesus cannot solve. There is no problem in human life that discipleship cannot solve. Is that true? Can discipleship, can a discipleship relationship with Jesus really solve every problem in human life? Can Jesus change a racist heart? Can Jesus restore a broken marriage? Can Jesus revive and forgive someone crippled by guilt and shame? Can he break the cords of generational sin? Can he heal hidden wounds? Can he transform my greed into generosity, my lust into loving service, my anger into patience? Can he raise the dead? Can he give everlasting life in his Father's kingdom? There is no problem in human life that apprenticeship to Jesus cannot solve. I think Willard's on to something. The invitation to you this morning is come and see. Jesus is calling. You know what fruit has been born based on your current influences. Let Jesus disciple you on the path of life. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that uh, as we reflect on this and let these words sink in, that you would convict us. And Lord Jesus, we want to see you high and lifted up and to see our lives revolving around you we pray that you would be the center. And Lord, I pray too uh, that your voice would cut through the noise uh, of all the things that are shaking us and um, causing us to not hear very well. Cut through the noise, Lord, with your voice and let us hear loud and clear your invitation to a life of following after you. And as we go, Lord, we pray that you would encourage us each and every day and give us strength to stay true to your path in the midst of um, all the influences that surround us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.